Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. A show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. It's tough times for brothers these days. You can't grill. You can't sit in Starbucks. It doesn't seem like you can go anywhere without somebody calling the police. I actually was looking on Facebook and we're calling it white collar crime. Isn't that interesting, Jazz? We're calling it white collar crime. That no matter where you go, if you are black and brown and male or female of color, and you're doing something that someone thinks might be out of the ordinary, even though, as my good friend Jarvis DeBerry says, we are not extraordinary. We are ordinary. But some reason, people think that we are doing extraordinary things, and oftentimes those extraordinary things might be nefarious. And so they are calling the cops on us. But what happens? What does that do to our psyche? What does that do to our mindset as we continue to go out in the world today, being black and brown, male and female of color? It wears on me, my brothers and sisters. It wears on me when I open up my Yahoo every morning and I see in my feed continuous indications of what's going on in our world. It impacts me. I internalize that. It makes me a little anxious every day, wondering if I don't have my suit on, if I've got my hoodie on, because, you know, I like to wear my black military outfit sometimes, Jazzo, you know, and don't have my glasses on. But, you know, I'm still Dr. Corporate, right? Right, Jazz? I'm, I'm still Dr. Corporate, but nobody knows that. And depending on where I am in the world, somebody might call the police. But to help me unpack today about the experiences of black and brown people and the trauma they face with regard to prejudice, discrimination, and racism. I have the Dr. Howard Stevenson, the Constance Clayton Professor of Urban Education, Professor of Africana Studies in the Human Development and Quantitative Methods Division of the Graduate Study of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, he is also the executive director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative at Penn, designed to promote racial literacy in education, health, community, and justice institutions. This brother is backed by a $12 million grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and based at REC. This brother also directs Forward Promise, one of the premier philanthropic offices in the country that promotes culture and health of boys and young men of color to help them heal from the trauma of historical and present-day dehumanization, discrimination, and colonizations. Dr. Stevenson, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, man. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you. And I usually do not read the full bio of my esteemed <laughs> guests, but uh, having you on my show is an honor. And uh, I want to let you know I have been a fan of your work for uh, a number of years. I am a former student of Dr. Michael Cunningham. At Tulane. Oh, fantastic. And That's so, fantastic. Yes, and so a lot of my research and a lot of my citations in both my thesis and my dissertation work had Dr. Howard Stevenson and some of the work that you were doing. So I am very honored to have you today. It is a pleasure. The first thing we ask all of our guests, Dr. Stevenson, is what's your revolution? <laughs> oh, my revolution is um, making sure that our children are safe and, and protected and that if you look at the worst that can happen to a community is when we don't take care 
of our children or we don't defend them from others who are trying to either dehumanize them by not seeing them as children or um, not giving them the voice to speak so they can stand up for themselves. So that's my revolution. Nice. I love that. And as we think that uh, a child should lead us, but they need to make sure in those moments that they do feel safe so they can grow up to be the leaders that we need them. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Dr. Stevenson, I know you read a lot, and I, you know, I'm always wanting to promote uh, good, re- good literature to my, my listeners. What's on your nightstand? What are you reading currently? <laughs> well, um, uh, lately it's been a mix of things. I've been, I've been working on um, a grant where we're looking at issues of racial threat. And so um, there have been a lot of different articles that I've been struck by. But, um, I mean, I recently I just found powerful uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates sort of statement, an essay on, on uh, Kanye and and the struggle of other people in in general the, the you know the struggle of fame and on on our ability to stand up for our boy our people and um you know I thought he did a wonderful job so that's been on my mind of how you frame for for our, our children and families and communities um the the dangers of of being in in a world um where where fame can take over your conscience and so and and your consciousness so that's really what I'm what I'm thought thinking about right now right so if you don't mind let's unpack it because I haven't had an opportunity to talk about Kanye and what happened over the last couple of weeks and it really would be interesting to hear your thoughts and then also be able mm-hmm. to weave what uh, brother Coach was talking about in his essay because Kanye did take. And I'm going to say he he did take a beating uh, for his mm-hmm. for his commentary and his actions, and it'd be interesting to know if that was justified and your feelings on where he is, you know, um, in this stage. Was there a psychological break? Because knowing that you're a psychologist, just your thoughts mm-hmm. in general. Well, I, I think it, it's hard to um, make a comment on Kanye because I don't know him, and part of my sort of challenge of fame is that we don't really know the people right. if we haven't met them, you know, and part part of the challenge of being in entertainment or, or famous is, is that people do feel like they know you. And I, so I think the, the, particularly around health issues or mental health issues, it's so complicated. There's a way in which I think we need to assert that people have the right to define themselves and they also have the right to, to realize that we don't know all about them. I, um, but say, having said that, I think, you know, fame has a particular influence on how we see ourselves. And and it's a rare um, place to be for folks who have to navigate always being intruded upon and always having to present themselves as stellar. And, you know, whether it's about believing the hype or being a genius, but at times not knowing who you can go to and talk to, you know, you might feel as if you have, you know, uh, a pulpit and a microphone to speak on anything, even if you haven't gone through life um, with experience on knowledge or knowledge about those things. And I think that's one of the deceptions of fame, that if I do have a mic, I can talk about anything, right? right and and right. We, have, we have news entertainers that think, you know, just because I have, I'm on television. I can speak about anything without even having 
competence or or have have studied or spent the time and i think um i years in my last book i i was i had an issue with kanye making the statement i'm not so much making a statement about george bush doesn't like black people but uh i wish he had spent more time explaining that because right, he right. has so many people who will listen to what he says and he is brilliant and then I'm, I'm wanting to, could you explain a little bit more, uh, Kanye, what does it mean at this particular time that you're saying that he doesn't like black people? How does that play out for the folks in New Orleans who are being shot or, or who aren't getting services and that he has the power, the president has the power to, to bring services, but, but chooses not to, um, and people die because of that. That's a better definition. If, if someone had asked them, what do you, mean by racism, you know, and then, you know, you have Bush um, saying that that was one of the worst things he could have ever been called as a racist. And I'm saying, wait a minute, you started a war in the Middle, Middle East, <laughs> you know, you created calamity all over the world. And, and this is the thing that bothers you the most, right. you know, that someone called you racist. I thought, you know, I thought the press didn't investigate him either. What do you mean by racism, Mr. President? What do you mean, Kanye, by it? And so, it's the depth of knowledge that you want from someone who has the mic because you're ready to listen. And I think fame, unfortunately, gets in the way of that um, because you have the influence, you have the power, but you need the knowledge to help, you know, people. And, and I think um, that's, the, that's the part I'm concerned about. I think, that, you know, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates is making the case that those are different different issues. Right. At the same time, he's saying, you know, very few people have experienced this kind of thing to know what the pressures are like. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I exactly. That's why I think when, when you see the flip, um, and I say the flip because of the commentary by Kanye uh, mm -hmm. about his allegiance to Trump and Trumpism, and, and those comments that he made uh, towards George Bush were 13 years ago. And yeah. we, we see the onslaught of social media and the 24-hour news cycle, and we can get information so quickly um, that the, how do I want to say, the analysis of his commentary was so swift and quick because that information was mm -hmm. out there so fast. And right. he was a hero 13 years ago and now is being vilified, uh, right. vil vilified for his commentary. Um, you're listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal. My esteemed guest today is Dr. Howard Stevenson. Um, as we get, begin to talk about the experiences of African American and men of color in the United States, Dr. Stevenson, it's it's we're having some troubling times. It's not, and I, I say troubling because it's nothing new. But I think it goes back to that last mm -hmm. statement that I said that we are able to see the experiences of men of color uh, in a nanosecond. We can record and post. Anywhere. Uh, there's mm -hmm. so many medium. And you've seen over the last six weeks that the experiences of men of color, whether it be a Starbucks or whether it be grilling in Oakland, that um, as one pundit called it, white collar crime, where if the experiences are not in conjunction to the experiences of what other people have, have learned, then it's easy for them to say this is something wrong and to call the police. Um, mm -hmm. It was very interesting uh, watching a video of a uh, young brother who was an investor who had gone into a dilapidated house in a white neighborhood uh, because he had bought the house and was go going to flip it. But the white neighbor called the cops and 
even after he showed her all of the paperwork that was necessary to say, this is my house, I'm about to do this, she still called the cops. Mm -hmm. The irony of this, Dr. Stevenson, is that usually when the cops come, you expect them to side with the, the person, the caller. In this instance, right. however, they sided with the black man, and they actually berated and chided the woman, like, wow. why did you even waste our time with this? Um, yes. But the privilege, and I the privilege that went along with it is that she was belligerent with the cops to the last and actually said, wow. told him to get do your work and get out while the cops were there. Mm. So you know that, wow. yeah, exactly. So. My, my question to you is, is that because you talk so eloquently, I've done so much homework over, on you over the years, is that the, what impact does this trauma, this constant experience of racism and discrimination and prejudice do to the, the neurological aspects of our brain that then dictates how we behave and think? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I love how you put it as well, that the, the – the examples are examples, I think, of, you know, white supremacy as both an ideology and a, almost a religious ideology, what I believe, but it's also a disease that, that dictates how I should be, behave and distort reality. So right. in so many ways, um, I, you know, we found that, you know, it's, it's a burden and maybe I think even a trauma to, live in a world in which you've been perceived as inferior. But it's also a trauma to live in a world when you've been perceived or try to keep up a lie about your superiority. And so the pressure on on humanity to be something else besides human, either inferior or superior, is traumatizing. And so imagine someone having uh, this strong belief in a world in which they are on top, but the evidence does not support it. And where in the world do you get support for that evidence? And particularly, we think, around the racial, uh, around some of the neuroscience, is that um, the threat of black people is visceral. Right. And, and the research, you know, on it, and it extends to young children, that, it, that in the presence of children, uh, black and brown children and adults, uh, many folks who are frightened are, are are perceiving them as older than they really are, larger than they really are, and closer than they really are. Right. So the, the sense of immediate visceral threat within a second that you could, um, um, and what what some call, um, you know, the sort of amygdala hijack where my brain goes on lockdown, and there's only two decisions that either you're going to hurt me or I'm going to hurt you. That that is the condition under which I think people or disease that people are saying, I must now do something. I must now call the police to protect myself without thought, without processing. And that sense of fear is so intense that, you know, reality is it's hard to seep in. But but I think it's an example of, of you know, socialization of white supremacy and having to be on top. And justify my fears. Right. That goes that goes back centuries, um, in in my view. So no, it's interesting that you say that. I am I am so fascinated and have been fascinated with the neurology of of all of this. That being perceived as bigger uh, and more lethal, uh, because we hear mm-hmm. that um, I feared for my life, and. Yeah. And that in itself 
being perceived as bigger. And one of your papers that you wrote early on about the um, being, I can't remember, please forgive me, big-boned and baby-faced, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that, so ad- adolescent boys, you know, who are big-boned larger and their perceptions of having to be men um, to yeah. to to adhere to the perceptions that even though they were baby-faced, they had that strong exterior. And then the coping mechanism, um, um, Dr. Cunningham and I did an extensive research on hypermasculinity, and that was, our, that was my area, um, and how yeah. that impacted uh, academic outcomes and the per- their perceptions of teachers towards them and how it impacted their academic outcomes. And what we found is that those teachers who somehow were able to thwart the neurology, as we say, uh, and say, I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to show love and support and care. The adoption of hypermasculine attitudes actually lessened, and and our young men were actually able to do better. But yeah. superseding that is always you know, getting more people to understand that, as I said earlier in my commentary from my good friend Jarvis DeBerry, is that we are not extraordinary people. And it's really interesting to hear him say that because we, we always say, I'm extraordinary, I'm extraordinary. What this awesome columnist here in New Orleans is trying to say is that we get up like everyone else and we go to we we go to bed we go and have dinner with families we have friends we do things that everybody else does we are ordinary people uh, and it's such an interesting concept to hear because it is that extraordinary in the nefarious way that has people calling mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it, it's really really interesting yeah. um how does this trauma? And so, just one one more second on the on the, on the neurology of this. How do you think this tra- trauma correlates with um, our chronic health conditions that we're seeing, particularly since this is Mental Health Awareness Month around depression and suicide for young men and women of color? Yeah, the the increase of suicide for for young men and and women um, has dramatically increased over the last ten to twenty years. So, what we thought of as a as a a stable statistic that uh, black young people would not be crossing over into that sort of range. It stayed steady for many decades. It has been shattered. And I think it's the constant, it's it's the access to, um, you know, socialization, whether it's media or otherwise, subtle, direct, is the sense that you you are a problem. You know, it's sort of that perennial question that, that, uh, W.B. Du Bois asks, you know, how does it feel to be a problem? Even when people are complimenting you, they think of you as bizarre. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Even if they think of you as superhuman, they don't think of you really as human. Right. We characterize strength as somehow monstrous. Uh, or we think of, you know, um, mistakes as an inability. And, and I think the challenge um, when it comes to the constant onslaught of that set socialization, messaging, and actions, um, that you don't deserve to have a cup of coffee. You don't deserve to sit and enjoy yourself in a public space because I don't see you as human. And that's, that, that dehumanization socialization over time takes its toll. And that's where I think, you know, countering that socialization very directly is important for young people and adults. Um, not that all of it is, is contributing to depression, but it's a, a large part of everywhere you go. If you go to work, if you go to play, if you go to relax, if you go to walk, and you still find somebody finding you, seeing you as a problem, you can't, you can't walk away from that, if right. that makes any sense. And so you need a counter 
you need a um, you need a literacy to navigate that, and uh, children do too. Right, right. It, it is that constant threat in your mind that I have to not be perceived as a threat. And mm-hmm. that weighs so heavily. And then knowing that at any point in time now, um, because we internalize all of these experiences, and I think that goes back to the onslaught of media, traditional media and social media now being able to chronicle every incident that goes on, unconsciously we internalize these events. And then we, mm-hmm. you know, then we consciously decide how am I going to behave in context. Um, right. What I found very interesting, and we're going to go to a break in a couple minutes, uh, Dr. Stevenson, was I listened to your TED Talk, and um, mm-hmm. riv- very riveting, and we'll get more into the work that you were doing after the break. But what mm-hmm. I really found striking was your conversation with your son. And mm-hmm. if you don't mind, could we unpack that a little bit? Um, because yeah. it really is telling to a lot of the work that you do. We'll talk about it on the other side. But what was the impetus for your conversation that you had with him uh, about Trayvon Martin? Yeah, well, it, it was it was fueled by his his own definition of the problem, his own uh, being upset um, and astonished and angry at how anybody could be treated that way, particularly a teenage boy. And so when he saw on television, we were basically folding laundry, and he was watching the television, which was just on. I think it was CNN. And uh, Trayvon Martin's parents were crying, and that bothered him. That touched him. And the more he listened, the more he was upset by, how could this happen? And and, and my youngest son, Julian, I have two sons, Brian and Julian. Julian just has a thousand questions. And so it forced me into a conversation that was unprepared, uh, as it were. And we try to do a lot of research on preparing uh, folks to have these conversations with their kids. But, right. You know, Julian taught me that, you know, children drive these conversations just as much and can have their own views of it. And so um, wanting him to walk away with something that, that, that he's not the target, he, he may be a target, or young people like them may be a target, but they're not the problem. It's those who are coming after and stalking. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of things uh, because it got emotional. And, you know, it's awkward if you're not prepared. And so I think a lot of parents go through, you know, how do I approach this? What do I say to counter this this, this negative and dehumanizing world? Right, right. It was really interesting um, because our parents had to talk with us. It was interesting you say that mm-hmm. your, your mother had the talk with you as you walked into the grocery yeah. store. My mother always, you know, she would send me to the store right across the street. She had, and she had developed relationships with the management. But she always said, when you're going to get milk, always get a bag. That was a thing, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Always, yeah. always have a bag. And I, I never paid attention. So I, I never walked out of the store without a bag. I still don't. When people say, do you want a bag? Yes, it's ingrained yeah. in me. Yeah. That, um, but those talks, and it was really interesting to see, because you're giving the talk to your son, um, yeah. a- almost as Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking, you know, in, in his Between the World and Me, the talk to his son. Um, yeah. and, and really in this night, this, this wonderful emotion-leading uh, discussion with your son. So my question to you is, how did you feel? What was the visceral and... Th- Action that you were feeling during that during that time as you're having that discussion because it sounded like at some point you were welling up because 
the thought of an attack towards your son at uh, uh, I think you said he was eight at the time. Yes, so, yes, he was eight. Right. What were and, the emotions? Um, well, the more um, and some of the research we're doing now on you know how do you navigate a racially stressful moment is can you take notes on yourself and and while I was trying to follow his direction, I also noticed that I started imaging. You know, what if somebody were chasing him or his oldest brother? I just came in the middle of the conversation, like a flashback. And I think I've always been on guard about it. I've always been worried that I might have to do something if somebody does something silly to my son, the stupid. And so in that moment, the more he was talking about it, the more he was touching me emotionally, the more I started leaving the conversation and imagining if somebody were chasing them, I'd want to be there and get them. And part of it was in my defense, I think, a lot of parents, a lot of fathers go through how, what will I do if that moment shows up, right? And and I think uh, I lost it. And literally in the process, you know, he helped me to come back from that image of the worst case scenario because he didn't want me to get hurt, which was the point of the talk in the first place because I didn't want him to get hurt. But he ends up teaching me when I lose it about how I can be, be safer in the process. And so it was very emotional. Um, but every parent who even thinks about the talk or gives it and then worries, have I done enough? You, you get teary. You get emotional. Right, right. I know the relationship that I have with my father, uh, who's been with me for 80, you know, been with me for 47 years. Um, it is a, it, it is a level mm -hmm. of speech that a father and a son have. Dr. Stevenson, yeah. I want you to hold on. I, I want you to talk about as we think about as we come to break. How do we how do we prepare? How do we cope with this trauma? Uh, and we'll 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 bring more of that inter that that conversation you have with your son after the break. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corper. We'll see you on the other side. never been easier to bank with us. Go to www.LibertyBank.net and apply for a checking account to gain immediate access to our wide range of services, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At our new Gentilly branch, use the ATM not only to withdraw, but also to deposit money into your account whenever convenient for you. Go to www.LibertyBank.net. Open an account now and enjoy the freedom of 24-7 banking with Liberty. There's freedom here. And don't forget to use promo code WBOK. Universal Printing in New Orleans East is the place to go for all of your digital printing needs. Universal Printing offers a wide range of printing services and promotional products. They handle everything from business cards to personalized prescription pads. They even print yard signs, banners, and vehicle magnets. Stop by Universal Printing at 9900 Lake Forest Boulevard in New Orleans East near Reed. Or give them a call at 504-244-1177. That's 504-244-1177. Come on down to Universal Printing and let the experts handle all of your printing, marketing, and promotional needs so you don't have to.
Do you need help with a mental, addictive, or developmental disability? Are you uninsured, Medicaid eligible, or covered? If so, Metropolitan Human Services District is here to help. I am Dr. Rochelle Head Dunham, Executive and Medical Director for MHSD, where we provide expert care and resources to help you maintain your recovery. Make that first step. Call us at 504-568-3130 or visit MHSDLA.org. MHSD is where we change lives. This is OT, host of the Good Morning Show, talking about chilling, man. No better place to chill than chills, man. First class classic hot dogs and pastry shop. Lord knows you can chill with some first class food at chills. Ain't that right, chill? That's the only way to go, OT. I mean, we're located at 575 South Carlton Avenue in the River Bend, uptown New Orleans, with Carlton running to uh, St. Charles. We have great hot dogs. We have great po' boys. We have great gumbo. Uh, we have pastries that's, oh, uh, man, to bite your fingers for. Man, talking about taking care of your own, man. You can buy from one of our own, eat good food from one of our own, and guess what? You can chill always with Chills and his family, man, over at Chills First Class Hot Dogs and Pastries. No better place to chill than at Chills. One more time, where you located, Chill? 575 Carrollton Avenue um, in the River Bend. Take it from me, OT, and the early bird. Hey, early bird. Yeah, I, I hear you tweeting. Where do we chill? At Chills. We contact Mr. Chills First Class Hot Dog and Sweet Pastries at 504-533-9308. I will operation 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday. WBOK New Orleans, your community station. Welcome back to the Western Revolution Show with Dr. Charles Corporal here with the esteemed Dr. Howard Stevenson as we talk about what it's like to be black and brown in our country and some of the traumas that we face that we face from prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Dr. Stevenson, are you still with me? Dr. Stevenson, are you still with me? Uh, yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just okay. want to give a shout-out to my producer, Rachel Graham, and the man behind the wheels of steel, Kendall the Jazz Man Williams. Um, Dr. Stevenson, as we were finishing our conversation a little bit after, uh, before the break, we were talking about your interaction with your son um, after him watching the parents of Trayvon Martin. What were some of his takeaways um, from that conversation? Um, I think one of them was that um, that his he was his sense of outrage uh, about what he was listening to was not incorrect. That he that his first instinct that that didn't make any sense um, was right on. And I think we underestimate children sometimes, all children, um, because they're not often want to ask their opinion. But um, I think the, the one takeaway is that his own lens on the situation was accurate. And uh, I think he feels like he trusts his own lens. I think another thing is the shock that somebody would treat another a person who's a child that way. So right. when he thinks of uh, Trayvon Martin, he thought of him as a teenager, as a boy, in a world that didn't think of mm. Trayvon as a boy. And and. You know, we've had the conversations when other incidents have happened in the in the news media, and the first thing that news media does is to somehow um, kill the character, the age. It's a different kind of racial threat where they 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 up, they they um, destroy his sense of dignity about being a boy and call him a man, right. treat him as if he um, was intentional in his own murder. And so 
that that um, that outraged him, but it shocked him that somebody would somehow not see a boy in a boy. And then the pain for the parents. And his, I think, another takeaway is that um, you know, you know, what are parents doing <laughs> when they think that uh, when we started talking about George Zimmerman's parents, um, he he walked away with a sense of shock that the parents would consider, you know, what their son had done was okay, um, and. I think he also walked away feeling angry, you know, that um, anybody would um, even consider him as somehow a threat. Threat, And um, I think that 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 was that's something we continue to look at. And he's always been very vocal about what's happening to other people. you know, ever since we've had that conversation. Right, right. It's interesting for our young men to delve down deep, to feel the emotions, but then also to have some critical analysis around those things as well. One of the mm-hmm. things that I'm sure that you do at home with your son, Julian, and something that you're a, 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 promoted, a proponent of and that you're promoting now across the country with your work is the concept of racial literacy. What is it? Mm-hmm. Can you can you expound upon that? What is racial literacy? Yeah. Sure. Um, racial literacy, in a nutshell, and uh, other folks have been writing about it, but the way I've defined it is this ability to be able to read, um, to recast, and to resolve a racially stressful encounter. When we think of the work that we're doing around, um, you know, helping young people navigate racial conflict, when we look at the conflicts in the world currently around police and young people that go awry, that go badly, they tend to go badly within less than two minutes. And so most of our work is saying, you know, if you believe in racial, if you have racial views and ideas, um, you know, many of those are ideologies about who we will vote for, what stands we will take on positions, but they're not often related to what I believe about racial justice and what I'm going to do and make a decision about that's racially just in less than two minutes are very different realities. So racial literacy is a sense, do I know when a racially stressful moment happens, when a racial conflict is about to happen, can I read it accurately and the meaning it has for people in that encounter? Recasting is, you know, how stressed am I during this moment? You know, can I calculate, locate, communicate my own feelings about how my body's reacting? and what images and self-talk is happening during that moment. And if I'm at a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, highly stressed, do I have a way to bring that stress down so it's much more manageable? And the research that a lot of folks have been doing, when you are so stressed, your brain goes on lockdown. High, high stress levels, you, you basically get hijacked, and you can't make good decisions. And um, you're usually in a racial threat position, and that's when we think a lot of police, and even educators overreact and make the worst-case scenario just to protect themselves from the threat. Um, But if you're able to move that 10 down to a 7, your brain comes back on lockdown. You make better decisions. You're taking in more information to make more knowledgeable decisions. And eventually we think you can resolve those conflicts by not underreacting or overreacting. And so racial literacy is this ability over time through practice to be able to read, to reduce the stress of, and then resolve these encounters with decisions that that match your ideas of justice. Right. Now, Dr. Stevenson, is this on both sides or is this just for the people in power? 
It's for for everybody. Okay. And I think the the ideas, even for our young people, um, also need skills to navigate when they're being wrongfully harassed, right? Um, uh, It's not uncommon for any of us, if we were in a situation, to run, right? And we think of running sometimes as a way to protect ourselves. But if your brain is also on lockdown, um, you're also in a fight, flight, or fright mode. Um, part of the idea is still, even those, um, regardless of which side you're on, can you calculate, locate, communicate? Can you bring that stress down so you can make better decisions, which might include running, but not as a reaction? Right. Um, and so part of it is we want to make our decisions, uh, choices that we're making, not sort of fight, flight, or fright reactions that, that mean that we're, we're on, we're on lockdown and, um, we're not maybe seeing everything. And I think, you know, um, part of racial literacy is how much practice you're actually given. And, and, and we think you can't just have one talk with children uh, or with colleagues. You need many, many, many talks to practice under certain conditions what you can and cannot do. So also that you don't internalize the inferiority that comes from people mistreating you. Right. Right. So many things have just come up for me just listening to you. That, uh, as the mind goes on lockdown, and I, I think about the situations that we, we've seen so much. I saw a uh, young man walk away uh, from police mm-hmm. in Indiana, mm-hmm. if I'm correct, just walking away. Um, and then once the cop got to him, it became, a, it became okay, I'm going to exert my power, and he eventually punched the young man. Um, I right. think about the bravado that we see in young men of color uh, to, and that is a we know you and I both know that it, that is a protective that is a coping method um, right it is not a personality trait it is a coping mechanism and so in that moment you know that coping mechanism I'm a I'm afraid right this cop but I still want to be perceived as manly um, yes. and so all of this confluence of things happen to then almost lead to these nefarious outcomes that we're seeing for black and brown men. And yes. and so what you're saying is that somehow both parties in those situations have to think clearly. It's some, yes. somehow bring that, and we, and we talk about, I know everybody's listening today, we're, we're, we're having this heady conversation uh, around arousal yes. levels. So if you can get to a moderate arousal level, um, yes, I did say arousal, everyone, a moderate arousal, um, you can actually think because the, the research on arousal, if you're at a high arousal level, you can't think straight. The, the brain is working. It's so much is going on with the brain. The brain is overloaded. And so you're going right. to make those rash decisions. But if you can bring down um, to a moderate arousal level, we see the greatest players. Mm-hmm. We think about Jordan. We think about LeBron. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Knew how to be moderately aroused in a game so they could perform. And so yeah. that's, and I, I think that's where we're trying to go is that in these racially tense situations, we have to bring our arousal levels down to make sure yeah. that we are thinking through and make rash decisions. But that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. as you said, yeah. the amygdala, you know, we that flight or flight mode comes in. What am I going to do? I've been socialized this way. It is interesting, but yeah. it leads me back to as my producer said, I've, I've got too many, too much in the pre part of the question. Um, how do we practice this? And I think that's yeah. the same. How do we, you just said it? How do we practice so when it does sure. occur, we can bring our arousal levels down? Well, you know, as part of the uh, process, and I like how you're saying it. All all of that becomes, you know, um, I think the first thing we we do is that we 
we, we have to look to what faith and cultural resources we have to affirm our, our, our humanity. And we think that um, humanity is the sort of demand and expectation of affection, protection, correction, and connection. And affection is love. You know, protection is sheltering and monitoring. Uh, correction is the sense of accountability within the relationship, not based on rules, but on relationship. And, and connection is how does my relationship get you to other places around the world? And so when we see dehumanization, we see a withdrawal of some or, or one or more of those aspects. And if there's not caring going on in the classroom for teachers and students and black and, black and brown students, that is a dehumanizing environment. If I see a 12-year-old boy as a police officer as a 20-year-old man because I'm at a, a threat level of 10 or 9, is a dehumanization. And so um, one of the challenges of, of giving the talk uh, to our children is mourning this loss of humanity, mourning the sense that we even have to give our children the talk about how they live in a world that doesn't see them as children. And so, you know, the, you know, sometimes tears and mourning is the first thing we do as we give the talk to then be able to say, we're going to practice. I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to be somebody who wow. harasses you. Right. right? I, want, I want you to know that this is about them, not you, because I don't want you to swallow the Kool-Aid. And you know how it is in these hyper-masculine moments, right? The street game is you don't let nobody right, exactly. nobody. dismiss you. Uh-huh. Right? You're not going to dismiss me. Yeah, you're not going to disrespect me and expect me to just take it. But, you know, we try to reframe, you know, we want you to go home to your mom and your dad and your little brother and your little sister. And so if you imagine that this person over here is at a 10, they don't really see you as you. They're seeing somebody out to kill them. <laughs> yes. And then would you respond, could you outgame the game of white supremacy, which somehow has to be superior, right? And, and, and when you're loved... You don't need hyper-masculinity. Just, so what you're saying is about the teacher study you and Dr. Cunningham did is that when I feel affirmed, right. when I feel my humanity is not, on, not questioned, I don't need to raise my game up exactly. in this hyper-masculine way to be who I am. I know who I am. I love who I am. I am loved. You know, my, who I am is loved by people who I really care about. This moment does not define that, and so right. I can outgain. I can see that this person doesn't see me. Right. And I think the practice necessary to go through that processing, we can do it. It's not, it's not as hard as we might think, but we're counter-socializing the narratives that have been given to us. And young people, uh, you know, when my son is outraged that this is happening, it's that outrage that young people have that remind us that that's exactly right. You do not deserve this. You no. should be upset when you see this and why people are doing because that's their problem, um, not ours. Right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Cooper. My esteemed guest today is Dr. Howard Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson, I, I want you to think about, you know, in this practice, who are some of the other conduits that we have to help us, you know, talk through um, the issues that we deal as men? Uh, and I, I know one of the things you talk about is the barbershop. And what is the, imp- what is the importance of the barbershop and really practicing and promoting racial literacy? 
Well, the, the barbershop in many communities, um, and one of the aspects that's so powerful, I think, for black men is, is, and children is the, the cultural affirmation. So um, black men will share very personal stories and experiences that they haven't solved yet with other uh, with their barber, um, more so than they would to a partner or a religious person they respect. And they tell us that, you know, um, I leave the barbershop, and 95% of the time, the most black men say, when I leave the barbershop, I feel good about myself. Right, right. And, and there are not many places I can go in my world, in my community, where that is the case. I look good, and I feel good. And if I share the piece of myself, I'm affirmed. So the cultural affirmation of the barbershop, the cultural style of the barber, affirms the way I talk as well as you know, what I'm talking about, it creates a certain amount of safety. A lot of the barbers are natural healers. They, they're <laughs> able to persuade. They're able to, 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 to uh, clarify and push, push the, you know, you're physically in the chair. You're a captive audience. Some of the barbers, when we said, we looked at 681 barbers in Philadelphia, my colleagues, Loretta and John Jamont, and some barbers, you know, they get physical. They, they're, they're like moving you around, they're right, moving your face, right. they're moving your head, they're touching, they're affirming, they're supporting, they're listening. You know, we, we think they are better than many of the counseling students in our program <laughs> who come and pay to get a degree. These are natural healers, um, and they, they integrate style. So it's, it's, a, it's a perfect combination for me in trying to say who – who gets black men, who listens to black men, who can get black men to tell stuff that nobody else can get to tell. Right, right. No, I understand. I think about the barbershop that I go to on a, uh, occasionally. Um, the brother's name is Scoop. And, mm -hmm. and there, was an, there was an, I don't want to call it an incident, Dr. Stevenson. There was an opportunity. It was an opportunity. It was a learning opportunity for Scoop and this mm -hmm. young brother who walked in. And um, the young brother had to be about 13, 14, 15 years old. And he walked in with no shirt on. And, mm -hmm. and so I was like, mm, I wonder how this is going to play out. And mm -hmm. Scoop was like, no, no, my brother, uh, you have to go put a shirt on. And the young brother gave him a little lip. He was like, nope, not in my place. If you want to come in here, you're going to have to go put a shirt on. Right? Right. So mm -hmm. uh, young brother kind of scoffed, uh, went outside, put a shirt on. So I wanted to mm -hmm. I wanted to see what was going to happen next. Um, right. Right. What was going to happen next? Where was that opportunity going to come? Scoop, being the brother that he is, you know, the brother, young brother comes in, is about to sit down, and Scoop right. says, "Hey, young brother, come here. Let me holler at you." And then yeah. the the talk proceeds. He said, right. "You have to understand why I want you to put a shirt on because you can't walk into any other space." with your shirt off and not be perceived as a threat. So why do you think that you can come into yeah. this place of business? I want to prepare right. you. And so he had this, you know, they had this time for storytelling. And right. so it was a really, really interesting space that for this young brother to learn that from yeah. someone who is respected in the community, because it could have gone a certain way. He could have been like, no, get out of my sure. shop and yeah. don't come back. Right. I don't, I, I don't want your kind. But as you said, the barbershop has yeah. this ability, and that's racial literacy, if I'm correct, the ability yeah. to say, okay, this is what needs to happen for you to be successful. Um, yeah. I love, yeah. you know, and I am um, bald now, uh, but started growing a beard about eight or nine months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so the beard has taken me back to the barbershop. I realize 
how much I miss being in that space, the camaraderie mm-hmm. that, that happens in the space. And as you said, brothers can talk about anything. Yeah. You know, and if you if you've got the training, like you said, the the natural healers, there's a level of intimacy. And yes, brothers, I said intimacy in the barbershop. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so we have to we have to shy away from the fear of saying that we can be intimate with another black man because intimacy does not denote sex. Intimacy is a yeah. level of friendship and respect that you can say anything that needs to be said. That vulnerable aspects that allows you to heal. And I think that's the critical piece that the barbershop right. events or the mastermind groups that we have around the country with, you know, um, brothers of color uh, who are talking about how to build businesses, you know, how to hold on to their relationships, to hold on to their marriages. Um, yeah. The good yeah. group that I have here, you know, 12, uh, uh, 12 brothers who are in, in the midst of uh, a variety of uh, developmental spaces in life that we get together once a month, Dr. Stevenson, to talk about, mm. you know, what's going on. And we have what is called the council. A person gets 10 minutes to talk about what's going on. We get 10 minutes to ask probing questions. And then we get 10 minutes to give that brother advice. You know, oh, wow. Yeah, to go out and say, okay. And the response uh, that we've had actually has been amazing to, for brothers to come back and say, you know what? Thank you for, you know, that yeah. help because it allowed me to go through a situation that I didn't know how to how to go through, and we yeah. we definitely need that. Uh, Dr. Stevenson, we're running out of time. I just want to have uh, one more question for you. Um, you're working on this huge project, uh, the Forward Promise Project. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? It's a huge grant, and there are cities around the country that are really working with racial literacy uh, and to undermine the trauma. But can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. Um, Forward Promise, uh, we are uh, we're lucky enough to, to win the, the grant to become the national program office um, of Forward Promise, which means Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, under the leadership of Maisha Simmons, is the program officer who's running Forward Promise and then decided it was going so well to make it a national office separate from the, from the foundation. And our job is to sort of... Um, uh, give money to programs that are targeting the improvement of health of boys and young men of color. And that includes their partners, however they define partners and family. It includes um, also looking at how those organizations can challenge systems to see the issues of health that are unique to boys and young men of color. Um, we have targeted two, several issues, but one in particular is historical trauma, that, that, that the programs that we're giving funding to, that they have some understanding of historical racial trauma and colonization. And so um, we received lots of applications. We were able to only give out nine um, to different organizations, but they are uh, phenomenal uh, organizations. And this is our first grant-making uh, adventure. Dr. Rhonda Bryant is uh, the deputy director, and she's in Huntsville, Alabama. Right. And we have a wonderful team, a crew of folks who who are monitoring the activities of this nine organizations. But they're each unique, and they each have a uh, not only a cultural history about how they've tried to address racism and racial trauma, um, and uh, but also stories of how their culture is healing. And so storytelling is a healing modality that we expect all of the grantees to do, and we're looking over the next few years to see what impact they will have on boys and young men of color 
the systems that the boys are in and and the partners and families that they work with. Right. It sounds like an amazing project. Um, I know there are, there were a lot of organizations here in New Orleans that were trying that were trying for the funding, but as you said, the nine organizations that I know that are doing tremendous work around the country. Uh, on a little bit of a lighter note, um, we want to know what was going on at the water at the Stevenson household. Your brother Brian, <laughs> <laughs> yourself, and your sister. We want to know some of the most successful people that we have in the country. What was going on at the Stevenson household? Your brother with uh, um, his National Museum uh, on uh, for Peace uh, yes. has blown up uh, with his uh, yeah. with his social justice and social advocacy. Um, what was happening there that to make you all so successful? Well, no, I don't know. We were playing a lot, a lot of singing and a lot of playing. My brother and I played for hours until it turned dark and came back with dust on our shoes. <laughs> just living in the country, um, but it, it was a lot of fun. But you know, we we also grew up in a community where people were always in our business. You know, church folks that right. we, as a teenager you can't stand, but they were they were providing affection, protection, and correction. Um, of folks who didn't always finish school, but they made sure that, that uh, they were accountable to us, and um, and you know, and obviously it's faith in God. But we don't. Part of it is we know so many people who also are talented that don't get this kind of um, notoriety. And so, uh, if you look at my brother's work, we were just at the museum opening. It was phenomenal. We were crying and we we're, you know, laughing and and also feeling exuberant, you know, exuberant about what he's done. Right. Um, because looking at our history, it's amazing how you can realize how much you don't know. But once you know it, you right. feel more rejuvenated to act even stronger. But uh, there's so many folks who don't get to know, uh, we don't know about, who are heroic. And the the museum brings up these stories that remind us of just how powerful the unknown is right. not just a known. no so no. um yeah we're ecstatic about both the work that you and your brother have done for the country and for people of color um uh, as i said you know uh, i have been a huge fan for a long time and have been really really grateful for all the work that you have led uh, allowing for scholars like myself to be able to go out into the world you and my mentor, Dr. Michael Cunningham, uh, have been, you know, tremendous models as I have tried to continue the work uh, around promoting resilient outcomes for boys and men of color. So I am appreciative and grateful and thankful for you spending time this afternoon with me. Uh, we wish you great success. Oh, you. Dr. Stevenson, we know you will be doing greater things in the world. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. And say hello to Dr. Cunningham for me. He also helped to raise my son. So. I, I, I think he's listening today. So, Mike, if you're listening, thank you. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporal. It's been a great show with Dr. Howard Stevenson. Enjoy yourself this week. Hey, and it's my birthday. So, 47 this week. We're going to turn up this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's Your Revolution? <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Ha <laughs> ha